Thank you. And I have the privilege to read the word of God to you this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verses verses 13, all the way down to verse 23. And we're reading this in preparation for our brother Peter to teach us on this passage. And I'd like to remind you that these are true words. These are events that actually happened. These are words that were actually spoken. This intimate and intense conversation that our Lord Jesus had with his disciples. Starting with verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us, against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, as we read these words, these true words that you spoke 2,000 years ago to your disciples, may they ring clear in our hearts today. May they teach us. May they go deep into our soul and our heart. May your Holy Spirit teach us as our brother Peter comes to exposit this passage. And Lord, may you give him confidence and ease Thanks, Scott. I make this thing a little taller. There we go. Uh, Briefly, just a little bit about me first. Lots of familiar faces here, but some not so much. Um, I've been a part and a member of South Shore for a while. Uh, Not going to say a date because I'd be making one up. Since Grace, uh, my wife, and I got married, we've been uh, in membership here and enjoying fellowship with you all, uh, along with my parents, Wayne and Lori. Uh, And up till recently, my brother Dan and now his new wife, Krista, have moved to Huntsville, so they've uh, gone from us here, but that's my whole crew. Um, (laughs) I'm also a a student presently at uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Texas, uh, and I'm nearing the completion of a Master's of Theological Studies, so I'm about two weeks away from the end of that. Uh, just in time to complete renovations on our house, which is just phenomenal timing. Uh, and I also uh, teach full-time at Georgian College. That's what keeps me, uh, not full-time partial load, but keeps me busy uh, day in, day out anyway. Uh, so very grateful to be here with you this morning and be able to spend some time in the Word with you. Uh, we spent the last month or so reflecting on the incredible reality and promise given in 1 Corinthians 15. It's been the last four or five weeks, Good Friday, Easter, 
Uh, and this passage is one of the greatest examples of what we call an, an already but not yet reality. Something that's already true but hasn't yet come. Something that's already here but we still anticipate. Uh, and that is the kingdom of God in Scripture. It's here but it's coming. Um, same with the resurrection. Uh, death is now but also will be swallowed up in victory. Christ has defeated it when he rose from the grave. He will defeat it for us when he returns uh, in glory. Death will be finally uh, defeated. It already has been defeated and swallowed up in victory. Uh, a few weeks ago, Blair, uh, same Blair who was leading worship this morning, walked us through the incredible accounts, accounts that Paul records of the great many witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Uh, and he showed us the confidence that we can have in the absolute truth of that resurrection, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was bodily resurrected on this earth and walked amongst his disciples. Uh, Pastor Adam has shown us that not only has Christ risen from the dead, and that that's true, but that our faith would be in vain without this reality, and we would still be in sin. It is by his resurrection that Jesus has conquered death with life. The effectiveness of our faith and of the gospel that we proclaim hinges on the truth and reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave in victory over death, over the wages of sin. Not only has Christ been raised and in doing so conquered death, but he has been raised as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. As we follow him now in life, so we will follow him in death and in bodily resurrection to new life in glorious resurrected bodies that will put these earthly bodies to shame. If you think that's about enough for this morning, I agree. Uh, what I'd like to do is spend uh, our time together reflecting on these great truths and the effect that they ought to have on how we think, what we desire, what we value, how we pray, what our priorities are, how we live, and who we are as we uh, press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God and Christ together. Before we do that, we're going to pray. Uh, Lord, we are so very thankful for this time we can spend together and the uh, dedication that you have put in us and desire to be here and sit under your word and uh, join in worship together and uh, worship you through the study of scripture. And we just thank you so much for that. And we thank you for the text that you have put before us this morning and the uh, phenomenal teaching we sat under of Blair and Adam who have led us to this point. And it is the opportunity we have to reflect on the things that they have told us and to understand the full breadth and depth of the impact that it should have on who we are and how we live for you. In your name, amen. Before we journey into that impact of, of the truth of the resurrection, I want to spend our time or start our time together by reflecting on the history of man's interaction with truth, man's interaction with the things of the Lord. We can walk through scripture and see tons and tons of examples of how God shows something to man. God gives man truth and how man responds. Simply put, mankind most often just ignores the things of God or outright opposes them. Man will choose to set their minds on the things of man rather than the things of God. Left to our own devices without redemption through Christ, we will ignore and oppose the things of God ourselves. Instead, we set our minds on the things of man. We often think of this opposition uh, just in terms of obvious outward sin. That's the easy category for all that. 
Uh, we think about it as opposition to the revealed moral will of God, things that are, are easy to see, things that we think of as governed by conscience, murder, lust, anger, pride, you name it, the, the regular laundry list. Uh, but man will oppose anything given by God. It doesn't have to be a moral command, it doesn't have to be a rule, it doesn't have to be something we feel guilt over. Think through how mankind aligns with what Jesus identifies as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Or think through how mankind aligns with the second commandment Jesus names, to love your neighbor as yourself. Neither of these are clear-cut, outright, outright moral commands of God, but they're important things of God uh, that he's identified for us as very important, and man lives in opposition to them. A little further, mankind will even oppose specific revealed will of God. When God says he's going to do something, man will act in a way as if it isn't going to happen, or as if they can prevent it from happening. Even when it's staring man right in the face, or even when the Lord revealed it to them directly, man will choose to set their minds on the things of this world rather than the things of God. And we're going to walk through wildly fast a bunch of biblical examples of that. And I'm just going to list like 12. If you want the list, let me know. Uh, but we can start right at the beginning. Genesis 1. God reveals his will. He says, this is the perfect garden. You're with me. We're together. What does man do? Rebels, acts in sin. And the result is that sin has corrupted the world. And here we are. We're still dealing with the repercussion of the rebellion of man against the will of God. Go to Exodus. The people of Israel are, are trapped in Egypt. They're uh, slaves there. The Lord calls Moses from the bush. And he says, Moses, you're going to lead the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt, rather. And Moses says, please find somebody else. <laughs> and the result, eventually he submits, but Aaron is appointed to help him. Keep that in mind. Aaron is supposed to be his helper as a result of, of Moses' desire not to lead. We go into Numbers. Remember, the Lord appointed Moses to lead. This is Numbers 12. First opposition to the leadership of Moses, Miriam and Aaron, Moses, how come you're the leader? Why are you in charge? The result of that is the Lord uh, strikes Miriam with leprosy, uh, extreme case of leprosy, and the two of them repent and submit to Moses' leadership. Number 16, again, the Lord has appointed Moses to lead. Next rebellion of the people is Korah and a bunch of other followers. They reject Moses' leadership, say, you're not doing a good job. We want to go somewhere else. We want to do something else. The result of that, their rebellion, their opposition to the will of God, is that the ground literally opened them up and swallowed them whole. They were just gone, and the people were struck uh, with a deadly plague as well as a result of their sin. Further ahead, you go to Deuteronomy. The Lord has promised uh, the people of Israel the promised land, and that's a, a repeated promise that we come across over and over and over and over again. They knew all about it. It was a big thing. Uh, and they get there, and they send in spies, and the people freak out, and they're fearful, and they want to go back to Egypt. It was safe there. We had food there. We could work there. We had homes there. Uh, and the result of that is they spent a further generation in the wilderness. All the people who rejected the promised land died in the wilderness and never got to see it except for two. <coughs> we skip ahead to 1 Samuel. The people are in the promised land. They're there, and the Lord has established over them a theocracy, meaning a, a pattern of government where God is the head. Uh, so we have a democracy, an elected official. You can have a monarchy with a king or a queen. Uh, theocracy is God in that place. So they've got a theocracy through judges, and the Lord uh, reveals his will to them through people. And the people of Israel say, no, we, we don't want that. We want a monarchy. We want a king. We want somebody to lead us like the nations around us. And that's their critical error. We want to be like the people who are here. And what happens? The Lord says, okay, 
you will have Saul, and he will be a terrible king, and he will make a great big mess of the nation, and so he does. So we get the failed monarchy of Saul as a result of the people rebelling against the will of God. Next up, we get the kingship of David that's promised to the people. Uh, Saul hears about this. He says, yeah, okay, David's up next. I'm just going to try to kill him. I'm going to prevent this from happening. Eventually, Saul and his sons are killed, and David, of course, is made king. I got three more. Uh, Jonah, the whole book, is a great example of this. Jonah's told, okay, I need you to go to Nineveh so they can repent. Jonah says, no, I'm good. Gets on a boat, goes the other way. The Lord gets him there anyway. Jonah does his job. He does preach to the people of Nineveh, but the whole time hoping they will not repent. The people do repent, and he stands outside of the city waiting for it to be destroyed because he loathes the will of God so much for their repentance. Uh, we can read through a ton of Old Testament prophets, and we can see uh, the, all these prophecies through the, the later years of Israel that the nation of Israel, uh, that kingdom, had to repent or they would be destroyed. Uh, the imagery most often used is they were acting as a prostitute. Uh, they had prostituted themselves to sin to other gods, and they'd rebelled against the Lord. And the Lord said through prophets, repent or be destroyed. They did not repent. They were destroyed. The kingdom of Assyria came in and just wrecked the nation of Israel. Uh, next up, the same thing happened with the kingdom of Judah. Judah, repent, be destroyed. They did not repent, they were destroyed. Uh, they opposed and ignored the will of God. And last one, and, and what leads us into our text this morning, is also through those Old Testament prophets, and even through the promises given to Abraham from the very beginning, uh, there's a promise of a Messiah, of a seed, of someone who will come and redeem and save the people of Israel. Uh, that is the revealed will of God that they knew was coming. But when we see in the Gospels, the religious leaders knew all this stuff, they saw all these things, and yet they opposed Jesus and rejected him. Despite their opposition, despite their ignorance, we know that Jesus is the Christ. They missed it, they opposed it, they ignored it. But the reality, the truth of what God revealed is true. And then to bring us right into Matthew, uh, Matthew 16, uh, which we'll get to in just a second, Jesus foretells to the disciples, and again, think of this in the same category, Jesus reveals to them that he will be killed and he will be resurrected, yet they deny it, they disbelieve it, they tell him that it will not happen to him, as we heard Peter say, but the result at the end of this, Jesus did die and he was resurrected, but in the midst of all that, they panicked. They were at a loss. They had no idea what to do because they ignored what had been revealed to them. So it's not only those living in ignorance of the Lord who will deny and oppose him and focus on the things of this world, it's also those who claim to follow him. We're not free from this. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on how man reacts at, at several specific points in salvation history and kind of compare those things. So we're going to look at uh, the religious leaders of Israel, the disciples, and us. All of us stand at, at points in salvation history where we know where we are and we know what's happening in the kingdom of God around us, but we don't necessarily know or live uh, live in light of what is coming next. So religious leaders, the disciples, and us. The disciples are a really easy example of this. Uh, they were able to see where they were in the kingdom. They could see that Jesus was the Christ. They knew that. Far more than we can say for the religious leaders of the day. They hadn't picked up on that at all. They failed entirely to see the reality of his death and resurrection. They knew where they were before Jesus came. They knew that they were anticipating Messiah. They knew they were the people of God, but they could not see the thing that was coming next, Christ, Jesus, that he was their Messiah. 
The disciples, however, did catch on to that. We can again see that confession of Matthew that, that Scott read for us from Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The disciples, at the very least, knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They had that figured out. They knew where they were in the kingdom of God. They, they had that nailed. In the same way that the religious leaders knew that they were the chosen people, they knew they were anticipating Messiah. They could understand where they were. They couldn't necessarily see where they were going. Uh, based on the prophecy of the Old Testament and the ministry that they had witnessed, Jesus doing, they were able to recognize Jesus of Nazareth as that promised Messiah. With the same prophecies, same messianic expectation, the leaders of Israel missed it. They were so focused on what their vision of a Messiah was, of their vision of a messianic kingdom, that they had their minds set on the things of this world in that way, and they missed the coming of Jesus. In contrast, uh, the disciples' minds were set on the things of the Lord enough that they could see the Messiah among them. In other areas, though, particularly in how that mess messianic kingdom would come about, how Jesus would reign, their minds were set on the things of this world. They could see where they were. They could see Jesus was Messiah. They could not see what was next. They could not see how he would reign. They could not see how a messianic kingdom would happen. So let's walk through uh, some occasions where Jesus foretold what was next to the disciples. He told them, as Scott read in the latter half of that passage, uh, that he would die and be resurrected. And it's not the only time. It's not like Jesus said it once and they missed it and, oh, okay, he only told them once. Uh, it is over and over and over and over again and they have very little excuse to miss this. So the first one is the one that Scott read and we'll read it again, Matthew 16, 21 to 23. This is immediately after the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So that's already a great indicator that this was ongoing for the remainder of his ministry. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is the first time that Matthew records and the other, uh, the other synoptic gospel as well, that Jesus tells them outright, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected. And the reaction is not great. Peter immediately opposes and says, no, that will not happen because his mind was so set on the things of the world. His mind was so set on his expectation of a messianic kingdom that Jesus dying and resurrected didn't align with that. It didn't make sense. It couldn't work. It wasn't in line with what he expected. He couldn't figure it out. That's only the first time. Second time, Matthew 17, 22 to 23. And you can flip with me if you want, but we've got a few to do, so don't worry too much about it. 
So 17, 22 to 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, that's the disciples, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Again, for the same reason. They, they were not in line with the things of God. Chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. This is the third foretelling. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, as he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is what he foretold already. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. If that's not clear, I don't know what is. But it doesn't end there. It keeps going. Uh, He tells a bunch of parables following this. If we flip over to Matthew chapter 21, uh, he tells a parable of uh, the tenants to some religious leaders. And the parable of the tenants is essentially a story about people who uh, are an owner of a vineyard who rents it out to some people and they take care of the land and they uh, make profit off the, vi- the vineyard. Uh, and the master of the vineyard sends people to collect on the, the earnings and check in on the vineyard. And they kill everybody he sends. And eventually he sends his son saying, surely they will listen to my son. He is the son of the master of the vineyard. And they don't. They spurn him and kill him as well. The religious leaders figured out that the parable was about them. You'd think that they would figure out that the son was Christ who was to be killed. Uh, Following this, in Matthew 26, he tells the disciples one more time really clearly. Matthew 26, 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus told them a lot of times that this was coming. Shortly after that, and again in Matthew 26, a woman comes as the disciples and Jesus are eating together, and she anoints Jesus with oil. And the disciples are indignant. They're so frustrated that that waste would have happened that they could have used the money for the poor or or some other purpose. And Jesus explains to them, he says, this is happening to prepare me for burial. I am uh, getting ready to die and be buried. And this woman who anoints him is a part of that. After all of these things, after all these foretellings, after all these pointing towards his death and resurrection, Jesus and the disciples have the Passover together. And anticipating his betrayal and arrest, he goes out with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And it's here that Jesus is betrayed. And the series of events leading to his crucifixion begin. And in that account, in Matthew 26, Matthew records two things that are are really interesting for our purpose here. Uh, The first is that in reaction to Jesus being betrayed and the mob that's there and the people, uh, Peter attacks a servant of the high priest with a sword and just cuts his ear right off. Uh, John actually identifies it as Peter and gives us a bunch of details there. But still, no matter how many times Jesus says it, you can see they are not on track. They have not figured out that the next thing is the death and resurrection of Christ. Peter tries to defend him with a sword. And as Jesus is being led away, he says to his disciples in Matthew 26, 56, all this has taken place that the scriptures uh, of the, the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They had been anticipating the death and resurrection of Christ as he foretold it. I don't know that they would have done that. Uh, Aside from the denial of Peter that follows, the disciples don't even reappear in Matthew's narrative 
uh, clearly until Mary and Mary Magdalene see the empty tomb after the resurrection. They see an angel, they see the resurrected Christ, and then they go to tell the disciples he's alive. He's here, he's resurrected. It's not till then that they show up again. The disciples had every opportunity to understand that Jesus would be killed and every opportunity to believe that he would be resurrected as he foretold and to act accordingly. Not only did Jesus foretell it to them, but the same prophets that led them to conclude that Jesus was even Christ in the first place also said that he would die and be resurrected. They got the part that said he was coming. They didn't get the part that said he would die and come back. Uh, And there's a bunch of those we could go to, but we won't. Uh, Isaiah 53, Hosea 6, Daniel 7, Daniel 12, all those prophecies and visions in different ways point to the death, resurrection, and return of the coming Messiah. The bottom line is the disciples had not set their minds on the things of God. They had set their minds on the things of man, of this earth. And it wasn't just them. The people who followed Jesus, other people, were focused on the immediate earthly messianic kingdom. They were expecting Jesus to basically form an army, kick out the Romans, and set up a kingdom on earth right then, right there, and uh, establish messianic rule that way. The messianic expectations this time were ac- were kind were actually so great that John tells us at the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus left after feeding all those people because if he hadn't, they would have seized him by force and f- made him king, and that would have been it. He would have been a king of a kingdom in Israel uh, on this earth based on the will of the people. All because they were all so focused on the things of man, the things of the earth, their own expectations that they missed what was truly coming next. The very first foretelling, again, that Scott read from Matthew 16 best exemplifies this. We see that comparison so very clearly. When Jesus chastises Peter, after foretelling that he will die. He says, Peter, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It was so distracting, the things that they were focused on, that they missed out on what Jesus was telling them, the things of God. John Calvin had a, a really phenomenal comment on, uh, on this passage. He says, so great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest light. So despite how clearly and how many times Jesus told them, I will die, I will be resurrected, their preconceived opinion about the messianic kingdom now and the crisis here now and he will have a kingdom here now so blinded them to what he was saying it brought darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest light. So having set all that up, what I want to do with it is is now kind of observe all these things together. The experience of Israel and anticipating the Messiah, the experience of the disciples and being with the Messiah, and our experience now in having known that he came and that he was resurrected. There's a really telling parallel between the experience of the nation of Israel, the experience of the disciples, and our experience as believers today. And that parallel is based on our proclivity, which means our, our kind of default or our um, bias towards setting our minds on the things of this earth rather than the things of the Lord. The experience of Israel, the disciples, and us can all be compared based on, based on that, that truth that we most often set our minds on the things of the earth. 
And we'll walk through those one at a time. Religious leaders, disciples, and then us. The religious leaders of Israel had so long awaited the coming Messiah that they'd built massive expectations around him and his kingdom. So much so that they totally failed to live in light of his coming. Failed to understand the prophecies correctly. Failed to understand what his coming would mean. And as a result of that, they were blinded by their expectations and missed the coming of Jesus the Christ, their long-awaited Messiah. The disciples at least figured that out. They knew Jesus was the Christ. They caught on where the religious leaders missed. But in the same breath, Jesus had sought for weeks to prepare them for his death and resurrection. He told them all about it, all kinds of times, in all different ways. And they failed, in the same way the religious leaders did, to live in light of that truth, to live in the reality of the things he told them. And so when it happened, they were caught totally unaware, totally unprepared. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. We have that truth from the Gospels, and we also know that exactly according to what Jesus foretold, the Son of Man was delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They condemned him to death, delivered him to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he was raised on the third day. That is Jesus' foretelling from Matthew 20. It has changed the tense. That's what he said would happen. That is what happened. We know that it's true. We also know that Jesus has foretold his return. We also know that he has foretold our bodily resurrection. And yet, in the same way, the religious leaders failed to recognize what was coming and failed to live in light of it. In the same way, the disciples failed to catch on to what Jesus was telling them and foretelling and failed to live in light of it. We often fail in the same way when it comes to the coming of Christ and our own resurrection. Israel missed the next thing in the kingdom, the Messiah. The disciples missed the next thing in the kingdom, the resurrection of Christ. All because their minds were set on the things of this world. Let us not miss the next thing in the kingdom of God, which has been foretold to us, the return of Christ and the resurrection. These things are next in the kingdom, and we cannot miss them. If you read through Matthew 24 and 25, uh, and that's largely the section we just went through a moment ago, but in that whole section, Jesus talks about pretty much only two things. The first thing is that he will be killed and rise again. Rise again. We went through all those. That's what he told the disciples. I will die. I will come back. Through parables, through teaching, through uh, just telling them directly. The second thing Jesus talks about in those two chapters, pretty well equally, is that he's coming back. The same amount of teaching and time and preparation Jesus gave the disciples to prep for his death and his resurrection, he's given to us to prepare for his return. If you run through those uh, two chapters, you're going to come across at least five instances. Uh, in chapter four, 24, sorry, he talks about uh, the coming of the Son of Man, and he says, the Son of Man will return on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then he tells three parables uh, in, in a row from 24 to 25. He says, no one knows the day or the hour. This is like the days of Noah. The people were unprepared. The flood came. People will be unprepared. The sun will return. Two parables he tells. One of the ten virgins um, who were waiting for the bridegroom to return. Some were prepared, some were not. Those who were prepared went with the bridegroom into the feast. Uh, he also tells the parable of the talents. The same thing. A master leaves and gives his servants some money to work with and make profit with. Some of them are ready when he returns. Some of them are not. And the master will return. Lastly, in 25, he, he explains to the disciples the final judgment. He says, the Son of Man is coming, 
we will return in all glory to judge the world and that we must be ready. Rather than miss this like the people of Israel did and like the disciples did, we would rather live in light of it. We would rather live in a way that demonstrates not only our understanding of this cognitively in our minds, but we can say it and assent and agree and say, yes, Christ is coming back. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's the next thing. But we must live in a way that demonstrates more than just our cognitive mental understanding, but our readiness, our expectation for the return of Christ. Think about, as a comparison, what the disciples would have done if they had truly believed and understood and been ready for the death and resurrection of Christ. Like, what if they got that? If when Jesus was taken away, they knew he was going to be killed, but they knew he was coming back. How different their experience would have been. What grief and loss would have been avoided and what joy would have been found. At the death of Christ, all they would be doing would be awaiting his return in three days. They even knew how long it was. They could have known, could have been ready. How would we live if we not only believed with our minds that Jesus will return and that we will be resurrected as he was, but we carried out that belief with action, demonstrated it in our decisions, our plans, our prayers, our desires? What if we really longed for the return of Christ and all that his kingdom brings? Uh, Blair led for us this morning a, a great selection of songs, um, if you haven't caught on to this previously, Blair puts a significant amount of work into song selection and, and picking ones that are on track with what we're teaching. Uh, and, and we send out those video things ahead of time so you can listen to the music and, and know what uh, we're going to sing. So if you didn't catch it, I'm going to read some of them for you just because they're uh, so on point with what we're addressing this morning and, and bring far more to our worship together when we know why we're singing these things. We sang together in the, in the song, Glorious Christ, you're seated now in heaven, enthroned at God's right hand. You've shattered death and freed us from our fears. And though we cannot see you, you're coming back again, and all will be made right when you appear. Sing to the king, I said, sing to the king who is coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Life and salvation his empire shall bring. Joy to the nations when Jesus is king. For his returning, we watch and we pray. We will be ready the dawn of that day. We'll join in singing with all of the redeemed that Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. Do we believe and long for these things in our hearts, in our souls? I'm a prime example of someone who does not always do this, I'm very willing to admit. Uh, I can find myself caught up in the things of this world. Things which may be on their own uh, good and glorifying to the Lord and can be great blessings from Him, but they can be distractions and even idols. Most often I would uh, associate this kind of thinking with myself when it comes to the, the coming of the Lord that I do desire and pray for Christ to return, but probably not yet. That's where I would most often land. Just not yet. And you can track through the the pattern of your life, the path of your life, and, and identify different things that cause that at certain times. Uh, for me, at first, it was probably going to university. I was, you know, enrolled and going to do, do a cool degree and live in Newfoundland and 
do all those things. Like, yeah, I just want to, I just want to finish that. Then, okay, maybe after that, let's let's talk about the return of Christ. Then, uh, and then after that, you know, I enrolled in in doing an MTS uh, to better equip myself for life and work in the kingdom and all those different things. The degree I'm working on now, I said, well, like, let's just wait for that to be done because I've started now, and you know, I, I kind of want to get through that and use it. Uh, and then I met Grace, and that just kind of throws the whole thing out of whack. Like it's all over then. I've, you know, I've met this wonderful woman. I would like to marry her, please. Uh, you can hold off at least till that happens. Like at least then. Uh, and that continues to be uh, my my thinking. I would just like to be with Grace forever, so we can just hold off. Um, and I joke, but that's that's what happens to us. Uh, could be job, could be employment. You know, I, I have a job I really like. I love teaching. I enjoy it very much at the college. I, I like seeing impact on students and, and their growth and understanding and maturity. Uh, most recently, we just bought a house, and that's a huge one in this category, too. I would love to finish that renovation, thank you. Uh, you know, we're a month in, and at this point, it's all been sweat and blood and tears and no reward, so we at least got to cross that uh, bridge and get that house done and live in it. And on and on it goes. That's only as far as I am. Like, no matter where you are at in your life, there are things to point to that says, yeah, like, just not yet. When uh, there are children, same thing. You want to see your children run through all those things I just listed. So now it's no I just listed. It's no longer about you, necessarily, and the things that are happening in your life, but it's the things through your children as well, and it builds. And then your children have children, and it's all over. It multiplies. Then you've got like 15 little people you want to see go through all the things that you went through, and we would pray, Lord, come, but not quite yet. These are all good things. They're all amazing blessings that we can be so thankful for. But every one of them pale in comparison to the kingdom of God, the return of Christ, and our resurrection to new life. The only thing that ought to give us any pause at all in our desire for the coming kingdom are those in our lives and in this world who stand condemned. And we pause and we pray for them. We think of our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our relatives, parents, siblings, children, spouses. Those things give us pause. We pray for the coming of Christ. Even if we get past all the things that distract us in this world, the desire for a house and a job and children and grandchildren and, and enjoying all those things. We can get past that stuff. We stop and we say, what of those who are not saved? And I agree. We need to pause there. For those people, we've got to cry out in prayer for their salvation and not only pray uh, that the Lord would work in them before he comes. Um, we need to pray that and that must be a, a huge burden for all of us. But at the same time, let this not dampen our longing for the kingdom. Rather, let it stir us to evangelism and stir us to bring the gospel to those who stand condemned without hope. It's not that we would pray, Lord, don't come. It's, Lord, healthy witness effectively now so you can come for these people. Let us bring the gospel to them. The coming of Christ our resurrected bodies, whether we're taken up from this life or resurrected from death, are so much greater than what is here. Uh, let us take the words of Jesus that he told us so many times, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, be ready. And let's be ready. 
What is here is but a shadow of the things to come. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, this is a phenomenal passage. We know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. All that to say, let us not set our minds on the things of this world. As the religious leaders did, as the disciples did, they missed what was next. Instead, let's set our minds on the things of God as Jesus extolled Peter to do. He said, Peter, your mind is in the wrong place. Set your mind on the things of God. Let's set our minds on the coming kingdom, the return of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah. He will return in great glory and let us think and set our minds on our resurrection from the grave following after him. We're going to sing one more song together, um, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, my heart's desire is that we would sing these words with a greater longing for the kingdom than we've had before. A greater anticipation of the kingdom and the glory to come with our minds set on the things of God. I'm going to read you one verse and then I'm going to pray and then Blair's going to come back up. The last verse of Come Thou Fount says, oh, oh that day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know your power will keep me till I am home with thee at last. Lord, we are so thankful for our time in your word, and we are so thankful for how much you have told us about what is next. We are so thankful for the example of the disciples in setting their minds of things of, on the things of God and knowing you and recognizing you as Messiah. And we pray that we would learn from their example in failing to recognize that you would rise again. Pray that this would uh, impact us in our hearts beyond just our minds, that we would live in a way that reflects our understanding, our full knowing that you will return and we will rise again. In your name, amen.